Hello and welcome to yet another episode of your favorite D&D-based podcast, Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my bellig- beloved, belligerent, bellicose. I thought you were going to say belligerent. Beautiful. I thought that was pretty neat. Bewitcherant, Teos Abadia. <laughs> How are you doing, Sean? Uh, ha- happy post-weekend. Uh, Did you do anything fun? I was in Toronto. I went up to Toronto to meet with the Ghost Fire Gaming lead producer, Joe Rosso, who is from Toronto, and Martin Hughes, who is our layout person who lives in London or Brighton, actually. But he came over for a visit. And so we had meetings and then we went and met the Dungeon Dudes, some streamers, some actual play streamers as well as some advice gurus uh who ghostfire works with for some of their projects and we had we saw their new studio it's beautiful right in downtown toronto uh but got to play test some things got to talk about upcoming projects and strategies and it was quite fun and next week actually tomorrow i go to las vegas so uh, it's been a whirlwind uh here i know you've got something coming up too yeah, I have uh, I have packs coming. So I spent this weekend. Uh, this weekend was my birthday. I celebrated another cycle around the sun, and I did it in true fashion, uh, gamer fashion, which was to write from sun up to sundown. And uh, when I wasn't eating meals, I was wrangling packs. And uh, I think there are gonna be some fun events mm-hmm. there. I think we're gonna have a nice time. There's some great DMs there. The, the, the... I love DMs, Sean, that say things like. What are the pregens uh, wielding, and what are their, you know, ancestry class combinations? Because I need to make three D printed minis for them. Yep, yep. That's uh, that's what I will never be. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. good job to those people who have have the tools, the means, and the ambition uh, to 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 do such great work for their players. Yeah. But we have a show to get to. We have some things to talk about, and we are going to start with one, yes, one, listener corner missive. This one comes from Moonbird via our Patreon Discord, a great place to discuss D&D and other RPG topics. And Moonbird says, I have a question for both of you that sort of crystallized a couple weeks ago thanks to a question in episode 151. It's about the publishing strategy of Wizards of the Coast. Nowadays, WotC seems to publish much less or no extra material once the initial book is out. No extra adventures, no backgrounds, no settings. Some exceptions might be Curse of Strahd being followed by Van Richten's, you know, Waterdeep Dragon Heist and also getting Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Or recently, the f- new Fandelver adventure, you know, based on the previous adventures set there. But it doesn't compare to the 20 official products listed on Wikipedia for Spelljammer <laughs> or the 32 listed for Planescape, not to mention other settings like Dragonlance or Dark Sun. What explains this difference in strategy for today's Wizards of the Coast? A lack of resources or income from those products? Are they expecting that kind of creativity from the DM's guild? Is it something else? And this is this is a question 
it's there are many questions within that one uh, missive, but I think we can speak to it a bit. And I'm going to give Teos the first crack at this, mm. uh, and I will follow yeah. up with any additions. So, so I mean, there, yeah, there are a lot of angles to this question. This is a great question, a rich question with a lot behind it as to why the strategy is what it is now. Um, when in the second edition days. TSR really exploded the number of settings. It found that this was not good financially. And that's the core of it. Uh, the reason it wasn't is that when you give someone 32 Planescape products, they become such a hardcore Planescape fan that they can't possibly afford or, or see beyond that to all the other settings you're also producing, like Spelljammer, Dragonlance, Darkstone, etc. And unless you can bring an enormous audience to where it doesn't matter that the Planescape fans don't do anything else, then you are lowering the number of people buying all those other products, and those other products don't sell very well. And that's what happened back then, and what has happened typically when this kind of approach take place, takes place. If you go too deep down one category, you leave some of those hardcore fans actually behind even then, but you 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 pigeonhole everybody. So and 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 then if we look at the numbers of what TSR did back in those olden days, they lost money, for example, on the Planescape line. Overall, that line lost a lot of money, is what we're finding through the financial analysis. So since second edition, every edition has tried to alter how they address settings to make them profitable. And they'll come up with rules like no box sets, or if we create a book of undead, it must apply to all settings so that it becomes universally used by all setting fans. And fifth edition really tried to say, hey, look, it's the Sword Coast. <laughs> it's the Sword Coast dummy. That's the only place we're going to, because that way everybody's in the same place. Everybody can buy every product. Every product is for everyone. And I mean, huge success, right? So while you heard people grumble about why aren't we not going to Spelljam or Planescape or wherever, the money was great. The success, the growth of the hobby was great. There's nothing that was going wrong with that early approach. Now we are being drawn more and more to settings. Um, is that effective? Wizards still has to be very careful about how they explore that. And I'll, I'll stop there, Sean, see what you want to add to it. Yeah. What Teo said times 50. And then let's go to the start of fifth edition, where we've heard from folks at Wizards, designers and you know the business side of things, have said that they didn't expect fifth edition, they didn't expect a sixth edition of DD. They expected to publish this evergreen fifth edition DD and then put out products as infrequently as it made sense while supporting the other things that D&D does in terms of licensing and sales. So sell the t-shirts, sell the mugs, sell the dice, sell the, the movie posters, the game material while fun and exciting, especially for us gamers, doesn't make that sort of profit that this other stuff does. So that was the plan. So they put out a box set that somebody else designed, by the way, right? Richard Baker designed it. An ex-employee. I believe at the time it was an ex-employee. So he did the design on it. 
the box set. Then the, the core rule books come out. That was done by Wizards of the Coast. But the first four adventures, the first four hardcover adventures, uh, the Tyranny of Dragons duo, uh, Rise of Tiamat and Horde of the Dragon Queen, those two, then uh, Princes of the Apocalypse, and then Out of the Abyss. Those were done by other studios, designed by other studios, published by Wizards, but written and all of that by by uh, Cobalt Press. I think it was Green Ronin and uh, Sasquatch Games. Yep. So Wizards didn't want anything to do with with creating those uh, those adventures. Why? We've talked about it before. Only one in every seven, at most, uh, players buy those adventures. Yeah. Now, what happened was, whether it was intentional or not, the unintended consequences of this slower release uh, cycle that we were talking about drew more people in. Rather than having a new book every two months, having a new book every six months to a year meant when you were playing fifth edition D&D at, at its launch, you were likely, unless your DM is homebrewing, you were likely either playing the box set or you were playing Horde of the Dragon Queen, which then led to a community that grew closer around this one adventure. All the YouTube people, all the streamers, they were talking about this and you knew what they were talking about because you had played it because there wasn't anything else official to play. And that really built the community and it got people engaged with each other uh, in a way that we don't see if if the player base is fragmented. And so it, like I said, unintentionally or not, it was great. It was a great thing for the game. As we saw the cycle of pub publication increase, especially now as books are coming out at a rapid pace, we are seeing that fragmentation happen. We are seeing people not even, well, I'm going to buy the Strixhaven book because of the school magic, school of magic feel, and I think my players will like that. I'm playing that. Whoops, three other books have come out while we were doing this, and I don't even know what they were. I haven't had time to buy them because I'm not going to have time to read them or run them. So we're starting to see that fragmentation, not necessarily even in terms of there's a setting I love, so I'm going to focus on it. It's just timing wise, I can't I can't get everything. So yeah. th there's that aspect of it as well. Now there's another question, which is how can Wizards of the Coast best support something like uh, Dragonlance? with the one box sets out and we probably won't see anything official from wizards. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But if we don't, how could wizards still support that while not publishing material on their own? And I think Teos knows the answer to this. <laughs> well, we'll see what you're thinking. I mean, I look at the fact that it's taken 10 years to get Dragonlance, uh, Spelljammer, you know, everything that we've seen has been towards the end of it. It's taken 10 years. And so when I hear Jimmy Crawford saying, oh, these are not one shots. OK, but what's the time scale? Because they might as well be one shots, right? Additions have often lasted, le lasted less than 10 years. So, you know, if I'm going to wait another 10 years for Dragonlance, uh, something significant, that's a very long wait. What I think is more likely is that we're going to see nods to settings, right? 
So you can have a single, as there's been some hints of multiverse spanning adventure, that's going to somehow tell me that I got a taste of Dragonlance and got to return to it. I, I will say to me, that kind of thing feels very hollow. And to me, and it's not what, <laughs> that's that's another conversation that it, I mean, it's nice to have. It's great to have callbacks to things. But if I'm going to spend 20 minutes in, in a, a Greyhawk, that is to me very different than being able to run adventures in, in uh, Greyhawk or even the Wizards of the Coast uh, fifth edition Spelljammer set is different than what a lot of fans wanted, right? Something that would really help them run Spelljammer campaigns. And so if you're waiting for that to come as a second product, well, it may never arrive. More likely is that you may jump onto a Spelljammer to get from A to B and have a battle along the way. And that's fun, but it's not what fans are really asking for. What do you think? I think, and I'm going to turn this question a little bit on its head. We have had support for all of these settings, not necessarily all of these settings, but we've had a lot of support for Eberron. We've had a lot of support for uh, Ravenloft, Van Richten's. We've had a lot of support for some of these settings via the DMs Guild. The, the issue is the fans don't call that official. They don't see it as worthwhile because it's not published by Wizards of the Coast. How could Wizards of the Coast fix this situation to support the hardcore fans while not spending tons and tons of money to create products that are not going to make that money back in sales? They better use the community. Mm. They better use third-party publishers. They better use the DMs Guild as a way to say, he, you want a, an adventure path set in Eberron? There's not going to be a published one on the shelf, but we're going to make a digital one for you. And here it is right here. And to, to better market that, to better draw attention to that, can make it feel to fans as if it is official. Because who's to say what's official and what's not? Wizards of the Coast yeah. is. So if if they, I mean, we have two adventure paths set in Eberron on the DMs Guild. One was done by the Guild Adepts and one was done through the Adventurers League. How many people who are saying, oh, there's no good Eberron content other than blank or other than the stuff that, that Keith Baker did, mm -hmm. uh, Wizards can, can point in that direction. They could do the same thing with Dragonlance with the Adventurers League uh, scenarios that uh, Bald Bang Games are doing. I, I think it's you're... just a matter of spending the resources to do that. Yeah, and, and I think that's the key is is that you have to have that concerted effort behind it all, right? So I've I've blogged mm -hmm. in the past about what made Dark Sun Fourth Edition a really great success, and my understanding from speaking to people at Wizards was it was really successful as a setting compared to all other Fourth Edition settings, including Forgotten Realms. Dark Sun was incredibly successful financially. And I think the key to that was the attention that Wizards gave to it and, and the deliberate nature of the attention and how it panned out, right? Game right. days at stores. There were, I think, three mm -hmm. store game days plus an encounters season that really brought attention to that. There were early sneak peeks at conventions and some really exciting convention events even before Dark Sun came out as a setting, right? 
So if you imagine folks going to conventions and seeing Spelljammer, and then that you can gain those materials, right? Ideally, uh, makes for a lot of excitement, a lot of drum up, a lot of a fan base that that has things, and creates all these parts that people can play. And then if you had material on the DMs Guild that really was indicated as being kind of officially blessed, right? The way that the Eberron adventures are, because mm -hmm. it is really nice that for Eberron, you know, you have a huge adventure arc. It's probably the the biggest adventure arc that's ever been written for for Eberron. Uh, just as you had with Ashes of Athos and Dark Sun 4E, right? The longest series of adventures ever built for the setting of Dark Sun is in 4th mm -hmm. edition, and it's all available, right? I think I've sent 24,000 right. copies of it out now. Um, that's the kind of thing right. that really creates a depth for a setting. What I don't think works very well mm -hmm. is the idea that I can just go to the DMs Guild and see hundreds of supplements for Spelljammer, and I don't know which to choose. That's fine. Mm -hmm. It's great. But that's like when I was on the Internet, you know, on Usenet and there were just random ideas from people. It, it's great, but it's it's not what I'm looking right. for. Right. And so I think there had but that requires that effort. Someone at Wizards has to want to dedicate that effort to push that setting, which I think would be good for sales if they can dedicate that attention to it. Right. And it's it's not easy to do. Nope. And sometimes it's not. It's not cheap to do, but it's not as expensive as creating and putting out a hardcover book that needs to be printed and distributed and so on. Yeah. So that's that's where that cost analysis needs to be done. But you know, it it doesn't necessarily take it takes it's not a lot of effort, but it's a lot of coordination. Yes. And sometimes coordination is 20 times harder than the effort it feels like right yeah. getting the right people in the right place to talk to each other to make these things happen oh we need a highlight for this on the dms guild yeah. and we need three youtube videos to talk about it and we need you know it's just that it's that coordination the effort isn't even as much as as difficult as that coordination in fifth edition so, hopefully often, yeah if i can just say fifth edition is often a fumbled the ball on that coordination, right? So for example, I wrote Cloud Giants Bargain that was ill-defined as to what it was before it released. And then it was this gift at movie theaters, <laughs> which is a fine idea, mm -hmm. except a lot of movie theaters didn't get it right. in time, right? So there was this, mm -hmm. and now people want the adventure and can't get it anywhere. And so th there's just this whole lack of, th really that, that detailed analysis of how will this work how do we make this a success? And then how do we iterate on that? You know, when we do it again, how is it a success, right? Because, and, and we, we saw that it was really good with, with fourth edition. I think, you know, D&D &D Encounters was a program that every season really worked when it was truly an encounter season. It worked on a, on a specific path that was refined over time, but improved, right? It, it didn't suddenly falter for no reason whatsoever. Mm -hmm. it, it, it did what it was supposed to. And same thing with the game days. Right. There was that method by which stores received a game day, ran it, it worked, it created buzz and attention and pleased players and left DMs and materials and all of that. And I, I think they, like, it's hard, like you say, but, but, it, but it needs to be done with concerted effort or it, or it fails. The other day I saw someone say, I wish there'd been a follow-up to the Dragon of Ice Fire Peak. Right, we got that adventure, but we didn't get a follow-up. And I'm just sitting there going, yes, 
how yeah. yes through james intercasso will doyle and i were hired to create the follow-up for for wizards of the coast this wasn't third-party stuff this was us writing for wizards of the coast and it you know it went up on on the uh dms guild and it just it never quite got the There was something in the box set itself that said, you want further adventures. Here's a link. Wait, when you say DM's Guild, it went on D&D Beyond. People just throw that flyer out. I'm sorry. Yeah, D&D Beyond. Not on the, because if it had been on the DM's Guild, that would be great. Not on the DM's Guild. Yeah. Yeah, that that would have been nice. But uh, yeah, it went went right to D&D Beyond. So, you know, dozens of people, if you were a player and you didn't buy the box set, but you played it, and your DM didn't think of it, you would have never known right. that these adventures are there as a follow-up to Aspire Peak. I'll and, do one better. Yeah. Sean, the, the designers that worked on Spelljammer Academy, which was an Adventures League official preview to the mm-hmm. Spelljammer setting, right? Awesome. Exactly the kind of thing I want to see, mm-hmm. was available for a short time or free on DD Beyond. And if you didn't claim it then, you can't get it now. There's no reason for that. I mean, at least charge for it. Like you've, it's it's there, right? They just have to unhide it right. to new people and charge for it. Yeah. Why would you just lose that content, right? And 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 if I'm a person who had, if yeah. I had worked on that project, I'd feel feel terrible that nobody can get it, right? Um, and it was yeah. it was yeah. sloppy also behind the scenes, right? Some DMs that ran the event for Wizards of the Coast uh, through Baldman Games received a PDF of it, nicely formatted. Others did not, and you can't get that now. And it's it's that's really frustrating, right? So close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's n- none of this is malicious, and none of no. it is even on. It's not. I. It's not unfathomable how this happens, right. right? It's one person drives it and then moves on to something else, and no one else in the hierarchy of people that need to know. Uh, are able to pick it up and move it to the next stage. And we've all been in situations like that. If you work or deal with an organization of more than two people, (laughs) you've likely been in a similar situation. So it's, it's tough. And it, what it takes is experience, right? It takes experience like Chris Tulak at Wizards of the Coast, Mm -hmm. who's been doing organized play stuff since a long time ago, right? He knows these things. He knows the, the system. He knows and so if he can get a hold of a project and get in touch with the right people, he can normally drag things across the finish yeah. line like he did with D&D Encounters, which went so well. Yeah, though I will say that the other problem that can happen is when the company begins to see areas as costs, like organized play, mm-hmm. and starts right. to forget why they yeah. do these things, then we go through the cycle that we've been through, mm-hmm. through so many times, where Wizards of the Coast says, I don't know about organized play. Can we get rid of that? Can we just turn that off? And we turn it off for a while or lessen it, right? There were times at 4E when they would advertise Living Forgotten Realms all the time and they drew in lots of people. And then towards the end of fourth edition, you could not find a mention, even though the program was active, right? Nothing, no advertising, no support, no mention of it anywhere. It's as if the program had died. And these cycles come and go all the time where, you know, Folks at Wizards want to destroy organized play, shove it under a rug somewhere, outsource it, whatever. And then they suddenly wake up to, oh, oh look at all the benefits it has. Of course we're going to do this. And that's frustrating as well. And I get why it happens, but it's yep. frustrating. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, Moonbird, I hope we answered your question and probably wandered off beyond it, but uh, thank you for writing in. You can send your questions to us in so many different ways, which we will say at the end of the show. Now let's get into our news and commentary section, starting with the Fandelver and Below Adventure. We're starting to get some sneak peeks and some previews, and Wizards of the Coast even provided some, and I'm going to let Teos tell you all about it. Yeah, I mean, I hear that Newbie DM uh, went through it on uh, Twitter, X, whatever. I'm not really on the platform, so I missed it. I hope Newbie DM will come over to Mastodon and share those kinds of posts so I can see them. But uh, Wizards of the Coast has had a number of videos looking into the upcoming Fandelver and below the Shattered Obelisk Adventure. They have a really nice uh, video piece with senior designer Amanda Hammond sharing details stating roughly a third of the book is the original adventure remastered. That's not surprising given that they're not selling the original version, original version of it, and you wouldn't want to necessarily lose that. I think if you just didn't include that, a lot of people would object. Um, it also includes new art and new plot hooks that bridge between the original and older content. The rest of the product and adventure is about what is found in that lost mine, as I guess you get greedy and dig too deep. Um, the mystery circles back to the monoliths in previous adventures, giving them an explanation, which I think is interesting because I thought Rhyme of the Frostmaiden had explained what these were, but we get a major adventure that circles around uh, this obelisk, and it feels like it, had a, like it has a kind of rod of seven parts aspect from, from what I saw in these videos. Uh, and the goal it was also in this product to have Fandelin feel like uh, Fandelin feel like a home base that they that the players want to protect from these new threats, which I always like when adventurers try to do that. I'm curious to look at that angle and see how well they do that because D&D struggles to say, you care about this town, but hey, go off to an endless stream of dungeons and never return. So I, I'm, I'm eager to see how well it, it achieves that. Yeah, I have specifically not looked at any previews, any teasers. I want to get this adventure. This is one of the adventures, and it's been a while. I've been looking forward to. I want to get this and read it. And I think we should talk about it on the show once we do that. Yeah, I think, that I think that'd be, be great, a, too. I'm, I'm excited for it. Exercise. I'm sorry, Sean, that I just spoiled yep. apparently parts of that for you. No, you haven't spoiled anything because I really don't ever listen to you. Oh, thank God. <laughs> in other news Baldur's Gate 3 continues its strong play and review cycle however uh, so it's getting high scores on places like Metacritic, IGN PC Gamer, Open Critic you know, 96 out of 100 10 out of 10, 97% approval 96% approval but we're seeing more especially in certain news venues such as Forbes that uh, the more people play, the more bugs they're finding as they get into Act 2 and 3. And Forbes claims that, quote, Act 3 is a mess with a ton of bugs that are affecting many people and forcing people to go back to save games. You know, so, you know, hours of play later, they have to go back uh, to a save because of the bugs. I'm not playing it. haven't played it yet may play it in about five years or so when, when life gets back to uh, a, a normal pace. But uh, 
everything that I've heard from real people I know, not critics online, uh, has been it's phenomenal, and yeah. they just can't get enough of it. My game, I've lost my gaming group. To <laughs> show, can we play tonight? I don't know. Why don't we play Baldur's Gate instead? Well, because I'm not playing Baldur's Gate. That's yeah. why. So. Well, that yeah, yeah, I hear a lot of very positive things from my friends as well. I, I'm not playing it yet. Someday I will. Uh, the other thing is that, honestly, a few bugs are really about establishing a classic feel. I mean, if you didn't get to play those gold box set video games and try to get a lightning bolt off without killing your same part, your party, your own party with your light, mm -hmm. own lightning bolt, time over time over time, and you just kept restoring and trying again, and you could never line it up. Now, that's not a bug, but yeah, I definitely understand that that pain. And <laughs> we're getting something free uh, up from Baldur's Gate on D&D Beyond, correct? We are. You, The Baldur's Gate Gazetteer, which appears in the product Descent into Avernus, is available for free. We've got a link in the show notes or head to D&D Beyond where it probably will have a little banner for you. Um, you can claim that free Gazetteer that tells you all about Baldur's Gate. There are also some articles and videos on the D&D channels that provide uh, insights into Baldur's Gate or aspects of the game, including, very smart, some videos that are clearly designed for, you're a fan of the video game, here's how to get started with the, um, the actual 5e tabletop game. Uh, some really nice interviews with Dan Dillon, for example, that, that are sort of, you know, hey, you're playing this game, how close is it to D&D? How do I get started? And Dan does a great job of answering those questions. The D&D movie is back in our sights. We did it the best we could to cover it up until it launched. We talked about it when we saw it. And now we're going to keep an eye on it as it fades into D&D movie sunset. But the question came up, did the D&D movie really lose money? We know that it didn't quite hit the box office expectations that uh, the movie had, but not many movies have hit their box office expectations recently. So what did you hear about this analysis of the D&D movie after its box office run? Yeah, uh, Dave Clark, hi Dave, on the blog fullmoonstorytelling.com pondered this question and is clearly a nerd for data. They began to pull all kinds of data sources together, tracking the reported costs and income of the movie in, in theaters. It's really very interesting if you care about kind of those numbers and want to see some data. It's really cool to look at. Um, he also looks at things like the change in search interest to find that there's a huge spike in D&D, both the game and the movie, right around the Super Bowl ad. And then two smaller correlated spikes when the movie is announced and when the movie is about to release. And he argues that likely there is a strong bolster in D&D sales because of these search terms lining up. Uh, we also saw that in the book scan data, so that seems to hold true. Um, the article yeah. then looks at streaming for the movie. The movie has been on Paramount Plus for over three months and from, from its release has been a top 10 movie every week across all streaming platforms. Um, last week it was ninth. It was number one in the UK and Ireland markets when it released there, number two in Canada on Netflix, released releases on Amazon Prime globally or released uh, on Amazon Prime globally on August 25th. For 35 days, it was number two in iTunes, top 10 for all but seven of the last 110 days there, number one on Google Play for 44 days, never below number seven. 
So it continues with these kinds of examples in the article to say, you know, hey, this is not a one shot. This is a campaign. And the movie seems to be doing well on this campaign. So it'll be interesting to see in this era of how studios like to claim losing money when they don't because they get tax write-offs. You know, is the D&D movie going to be seen over time as an actual success? Will it be financially success? Could we ever find out? I think those are all great questions, John. Okay, well, I'm I'm happy to hear it. I know I've watched it a couple of times, once in the theater and then a couple of times streaming. Yep, me too. And it will be interesting to see in the long run down the road if if it's use as marketing material to point people to the game and then onto further products based around the game will pay dividends for it. I have a feeling it will as we as we're seeing here. But uh, it'll be interesting to see, especially with the 50th anniversary coming up, if they can put the movie together with that sort of marketing push and celebration to make it an even bigger deal than it already was. Yeah, for sure. And finally, we're going to talk about Ed Greenwood, one of our favorite game designers of yore and today. Uh, He has a Patreon, Ed does. If you don't know who Ed Greenwood is, shame on you. But we will fix that right now. Ed Greenwood is the creator of the Forgotten Realms campaign, which you or Forgotten Realms setting, which you may have heard of. Uh, Ed now has a Patreon, which is great because he, let's just say, may have never gained financially as much as he could have uh, based on the dealings of TSR and Ed back in the day. But now you can support him with his Patreon, where he provides all sorts of Forgotten Realms lore, or as we experts call it, Realms lore, um, video form talking about all sorts of things for the the realms. So in a recent episode, Ed covered a story behind some of the strangest Forgotten Realms vampires, such as a lich-hating dragon and Chult and a vampiric mimic but i know teos that you have a favorite vampire yeah i mean those were great don't get me wrong but uh Mm -hmm. yovel the crimson flump consumed with self-loathing and rage after it mistakenly ate a vampire bound in rat form that's vintage and greed one right there and uh i i loved it Mm -hmm. this flump is basically blade it has all of the flump and vampire strengths but none of the weaknesses it needs no coffin, no rest, has no sunlight sensitivity. It's now a crimson color due to its anger and shuns other flump because it's embarrassed at its state. And it has this funny line between being evil as a vampire, but not, you know, still having some of its, uh, still has some of its flump essence, so it doesn't really want to cause trouble. Uh, and it's found near Skullport, and it's taking an, in, it's taken an interest to learning about the adventurers and inhabitants there. So it's. It's all great. It's all in a video where he covers these three vampires. And I, I, I had a lot of fun. And thank you to our Patreon uh, Discord for bringing this to my attention because that was a lot of fun to watch. That is brilliant. We're going to end there. But next week, we are going to discuss pay for freelancers in the industry, as well as meaningful, important choices in gaming. So there's a little teaser for you to come back next week and hear our news segment now we're ready for our main topic here on mastering dungeons this week we are looking at chapter eight running the game 
We covered it two weeks ago in our pre-Rob Schwalb adventure. And now we are going to have a further adventure as we run the game part two. We are going to be looking at a continuation of this, starting with advantage and disadvantage. I think that this does an okay job of sort of saying, here is what advantage and disadvantage are, and here is where you use it. The only thing that I think this is lacking is telling DMs what it really means in terms of the math of their game. And maybe it's okay to hide the math there, but mm. advantage and disadvantage can be so very powerful that some DMs, I think, feel the need to give advantage a lot based on just wanting their players to feel good and then wondering why, how come my players are just destroying everything I put in their path? Well, if you're giving them advantage on, on like half of their roles for different reasons, uh, that could be why. Yeah. I mean, I was looking, I held up a number of different versions of DMGs because I was looking at them to sort of try to compare how DMGs approach things. And I thought it was particularly interesting, the bridge between third edition and 3.5. The third edition has the running ga the game section and it's full of going through sort of things like poison and here's the rule for it and here's how you adjudicate it and all of that. And then in 3.5, it takes that kind of really granular stuff and puts it elsewhere in the book. And then what it really mm -hmm. says about running the game is, Kind of here's how to make decisions. Here's how to approach larger things like pacing and so on. And I kind of like that approach. Mm -hmm. um, I think this book struggles with whether it's covering the nitty gritty or the approach, right? If I look at something like Mike Shea's uh, Lazy Dungeon Master, you know, this is all approach. And I mean, somewhat easy to say mm -hmm. that because he doesn't have to do the core rules. He can play off of them. You know, those yeah. are in the DMG or in the player's handbook. But I feel like this inspiration section would be really valuable if it was giving me more on the approaches and what fun things I can do with it and how to make it really sing and things like the impacts of them and less about the granular nitty gritty of the rules. Like I think that probably should be wherever it is that you want to cover it. Maybe it's in the player's handbook, but but not here. I don't know if you feel that way. I didn't feel like this was too nitty gritty. Maybe some of the other parts were. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm trying to look at the exact text here for for inspiration. Um, what part did you feel was too nitty gritty in terms of either advantage and disadvantage or inspiration? Um, no, yeah, I, I take your point. I, I mean, I think I'm being colored by the other sections in in this running the game chapter. Okay. Um, Okay. It does, yeah, this does have, in fact, it's interesting to look at the examples here of like use inspiration to reward role playing when characters take risks and mm -hmm. see how greatly this changed with the one D&D Unearthed Arcana early packets, which really tried to turn it into sort of more of a, a mechanical piece. And no, you're right. I like this. I think this is nice as a, um, I take it back. This is really nice looking at it now as the adjudication and inspiration section, <laughs> inspiration, 
uh, for your DM, right? <laughs> Versus and 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 yeah. things like variants is are really interesting. Um, here and there's another section where there was a really nice uh, resolutions and consequences. The, the next piece has a really mm -hmm. nice uh, series of approaches that you can say things like, "What if you want to succeed with uh, with a consequence, right? If what if you want to fail with a consequence? Success at a cost." And and that is really nice, right? Where it's not the nitty gritty rules. It's it's this advocacy and and instruction on how to play the game. That's that's nice. Yeah, I thought the the resolution and consequence section was very interesting because as we have talked about before, D and D is very much a pass fail game, mm -hmm. and we've seen other games, many of which we've talked about on other shows that codify the idea of success at a cost, that codify degrees of failure and make it so it's not just the DM having to make something up, although sometimes it is, but there's actual mechanics like with a Powered by the Apocalypse game where you, know, you either get a 10 plus and succeed and get what you want, or you, you're in this gray area where, okay, you succeed, but here's three things on the list. You have to choose one of them. Or, you know, you fail, but you get to choose one of these things as a minor success. And so somewhere between that codification, making it a hard and fast rule and leaving it up to the game master or sometimes the player to come up with this success at a cost or a degree of failure um can be tough yeah and so i i i like what it says i i feel like there might have been another paragraph or two yeah uh so, so that, yeah, yeah it may be okay for D, D, right like when you're playing the the star wars um what's it called edge of the empire right with the dice where mm -hmm. so often you're yeah. coming up with but a complication right um, that mm -hmm. forces you to much more often be thinking about what to come up with and put into your game. And, and that's where I think you really need almost like a training course in your instruction manual to really support that kind of play. Uh, and I've seen DMs really struggle with it when I play Star Wars games with the, with the latest rule system. But here, I think that this is fine because probably for most DMs running 5th edition, this is something you're going to play with. You're going to introduce it in narrow situations and you're going to build with it and explore it. And it gives you a number of examples. You know, you um, and, and for folks who may not remember this or haven't read this, what it's saying with success at a cost is, hey, failure is tough. When you fail by one or two, when a character fails by one or two on the die, you could introduce a cost and allow them to succeed or minimize the pain. So you narrowly escape the full brunt of a fireball, but you end up prone, which is a heck of a gift, right? I mean, you might've died from that fireball and you're prone instead. I mean, that's huge, but it, it just shows you the breadth of some of the things here that are, um, you know, you didn't intimidate the kobold prisoner, but the kobold reveals its secrets anyway, while shrieking and, and running away, alerting other nearby monsters. It's the kind of encouragement to make judgment calls, which is really nice. And so you probably will take these ideas and use them a little bit. And sometimes you might go, I didn't like that, but you'll learn from it. And other times it's a real success. So you do that more often. So it's probably okay. 
Yeah, it's what advice in a book like this can do is give you that experience before you have to fail at it. Mm-hmm. So you know what yeah. I'm saying? It's like yeah. you you think, okay, this is going to be really cool and you try it. And then you realize that, oh, every time they failed <laughs> by one or two, I let them have a success and I threw in a consequence. But you know what? The consequences that I, right? The one was you you stab at, a, at the bugbear, you miss by one. Okay, we're gonna let the attack hit, but the the bugbear disarms you. Yeah. Okay. So what's the consequences then? On the next round, the character has to bend down and pick up their weapon, which yeah. de- pra- practically does nothing. And so they they use the the phrase. Let me make sure I find it here. They use the phrase the uh you know the the consequences should quote change the nature of the adventuring situation but then i don't think all the examples they give actually mm-hmm. change the nature of the adventure so like the kobold screaming for help and alerting all all the friends in the lair yes that changes the adventuring situation yeah. uh not taking damage from the fireball but falling prone okay next round you stand up yeah was that does that really change the adventuring situation so you know it's it's great advice but there you have to have the but then right are you having trouble challenging your players and you're Mm -hmm. frustrated because they're just mowing through everything don't let them succeed if they fail by one or two in fact do it the other way if you succeed right on the number Mm -hmm. you succeed but there's a consequence right Talk about those sorts of things. Give the DM permission to take it to the next step yeah. and and do these things in other ways. Um, the one thing I wish they'd said instead of, well, not instead of, but also where they say change the situation, I wish it would have been something like uh, make make an make it in make the consequence bring interest to the game yeah Mm -hmm. because i think that that says it more than uh chain you know interest is not you your sword fell down interest is something bigger happening and that's true of degrees of failure which is another option that we're presented with where if you fail the check by say five or more uh you might to, to disarm a trap well you set it off Right. Um, or mm-hmm. uh, you fail at a, a charisma check to get the queen to help. Um, but five or more means she throws you in the dungeon for, imp- for your impudence. You know, th- there, there could be some better guidance there as to how to, to assess yeah. these and, and create the right kinds of situations. Like you're, and I like what, how you say it around having this goal to what really happens in the play that could help a DM route themselves correctly right because it's probably that the point isn't just oh you tried to disarm it and i get to deal damage like yeah that's fine but there are way more interesting options that you could create and then that would make the play fun and surprising and and yeah engaging yeah so so two things about this i'm going to ask your opinion one is you're a DM and you've decided to put the success at a cost or degrees of failure into, into action. This is more about success at a cost. Do you give the player the option or do you just do it? 
And if you do give the player the option, how far along the chain of events do you go by giving them this? Do you say, all right, I will let you hit the bugbear, but there's going to be a consequence and not tell them what the <laughs> consequence is. Do you say, I'm going to let you hit, but there's going to be a consequence. And that consequence is you're going to drop your sword and who knows what's going to happen once the sword's out of your hand. So I, uh, I think you know, how, how do you, how do you manage that? Uh, um, I love having Rob Hainsu, who developed uh, one of the designers of 13th Age. He has a great thing he does when he's DMing, where he gets like a wild look to his eyes. I mean, it, it, everybody at the table smiles when he gets this look. And you can just see this devil's bargain begin to form. And he'll say, I tell you what, this fireball looks mm -hmm. really bad, but there's a way you could avoid it. Do you want to take that chance? And it's great joy, the way he does that. And so I think a lot of it is what do you feel as an individual DM that you will do best, right? Because I think a, a lot of, you know, if you can do the rob, do the rob. That is so much fun to offer that bargain that way. He has a way of smoothing away the place where a player would say, I, you know, I feel like I, I'm, I'm choosing blind or I don't know what this choice entails. I want more information. I'm, I'm worried. He makes it go away because of his approach. And so it really works. And it's a mm -hmm. joy at his table to have him offer these Faustian bargains. Um, even when, you know, they'll, they'll screw you. <laughs> um, my approach is often to just say, this is what happens. And, and I think I'm good at painting the result or the situation, the, the, whatever I'm coming up with in a way that feels convincing and conveys that I'm not trying to mess you up. I'm trying to make the game interesting. And so you buy it into it and you like it. So that's what works for me, even though I prefer to play at Rob's table, if that makes sense. I don't know what you think about that. Sure. So, yeah, so so along that same lines, then, uh, should there be in the player's handbook with all the skills, with all the abilities, with all the saving throws, with the attack rolls, should there be this? Should there be this? Here is an optional rule that your DM might use and then give examples under each one. You fail your persuasion check by five. Here mm -hmm. are things that might happen. If your DM uses this, you you fail picking the lock. Here is something. Here are some things that might happen mm. uh, to give the DM a little more cover, a little more permission uh, probably, to do these things. Yeah, it's a great question. I would probably play it a little simpler and just state something somewhere in the skills or saving throw section, maybe both, and just say something like. In some particular situations, your DM may adjudicate things beyond these rules. Uh, and I think it is good to state that because I, you know, when I read this chapter the very first time, I remember thinking to myself, huh, you do this at some tables and, you know, at conventions and such, people are going to say, that's not in the rules, you know, and then you're going to be arguing about this. And it's like, well, it is in the rules. Yeah, but that, you know, <laughs> what is this? You know, you're just, uh, it, it, it can be difficult. And, and I think maybe there could be advice here. To the DM, or a little bit of a caution that hey, your players might not expect this, and, and you want to somehow convey that you are doing, you are on their side when you do these things. You are creating a fun, engaging experience, not tricking them. You know, not 
pulling the rug out from under them. Yeah. And so if you put something to that to that nature, speaking to that in the player's handbook, then I think players are more prepared for it. Yeah, that that's a fine answer. I, I have opinions, maybe, yeah. but I don't have enough information to <laughs> no, I don't have enough information. This would be something I would rather hear from game masters and players yeah. uh, about whether it would be good, you know, a ne- positive or negative to do that um, for the various positive and negative reasons. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the final part of this after degrees of failure is uh, critical success or failure. We all know what happens if you roll a one we, on an attack roll. We all know what happens if you roll a 20 on an attack roll. But if you roll a one or a 20 on a saving throw or on an ability check, nothing special is supposed to happen by the rules. But maybe you add something. Uh, One thing that we see a lot of people, especially old school players, want are fumble tables for attack rolls. If you roll a one, not only do you automatically miss, but something bad happens. And some people think they're so much fun and some people think they're fun until they actually use them. And the table says, oh, you rolled a one, you just lopped your own head off. Um, They tend to think they're less fun then. Yeah, I I think what I would have liked to have seen here in this paragraph is speaking to the difference between a mechanical setback and more of a story one. So what I will often do when there's a one or a 20 is I will give a story setback or praise or reward, something that makes you feel good or bad about it, right? So, you know, you get a 20 on on uh, that saving throw and you just see the enemy spellcaster, you know, wither as they see how strong you are, right? Something that would give you confidence, feel cool as a player, right? Something along those lines, right? Or that the one might result in, some sort of situation that you could role play off of how you feel around the doubt you may have and so on, but, but not a real mechanical, uh, like the example here of rolling a one to pick a lock and breaking your thieves tools. I could see a lot of players not enjoy that, right? Like when, when am I going to get to buy thieves tools again? Right. Thanks. You know, Mm -hmm. um, or, or I'm in a city and I can just go around the corner and buy (laughs) a new set. And so there really was no consequence. Um, yeah, one or the other. Why don't you need a license to buy thieves tools? Yeah. Anyway. Exactly. You you should you should need a <laughs> yeah you should need to register those thieves tools. So that was the first part of this section that that we uh, were dealing with, and then we get on to a section fondly known as exploration. Mm. Teos, you might have a few things to say about this. <laughs> I mean, first of all, why was this not in Chapter 5, the Wilderness section? Um, because those deal with a number of environments. And uh, we've noted this in a previous show that we covered these topics. The rules are found in a combination of Chapters 5, 8, the Player's Handbook, and even one of the DM screens. So going over this briefly, the exploration section here covers using a map, it talks about the slow, normal, and fast pace of travel, uh, depending on what the scale thing is, like a city, one square is 100 feet or hex, whatever, one mile for a province, things like that. Um, special travel phase, pace, so rules for special travel paces, just flying or ships, which is kind of duplicative of what's in Chapter 5. I don't know why it's here again. Choose one, put it in that place. 
Visibility outdoors, so things like outdoors you can see two miles in a clear day, but 40 miles if from a significant height. Rain cuts visibility down to one mile, fogged 100 to 300 feet. Again, fine, but I don't know why this wasn't in that earlier section. Like, choose one, put it there. <laughs> and, and also still confusing with what's in the player's handbook. Um, noticing other creatures is really interesting. So if you are stealthy, you you know how to pose with your dexterity, stealth versus wisdom perception, uh, passive wisdom perception. And then one of the official DM screens, I think the second one, has a table with starting encounter distances that you don't find anywhere else. And it tells you based on the terrain, uh, it's in our show notes, uh, here's the encounter distance mm -hmm. that you have in feet uh, between two groups. And it also has uh, things like uh, audible distance and visibility outdoors. Uh, and then finally, we get a table of tracking DCs for various services and some minor advice. And this is all useful information. I just have no idea why that's here. <laughs> what do you think, Sean? Yeah. No, I like you said, you know, we've we've covered this at least twice on different shows where it's how I'm do we a, handle exploration? I don't this, know. I'm that person that's shaking, scratching their head, yeah. wondering what's happening. That's me. Just like what? Well, yeah, yeah. And I think it's 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 indicative of how different groups play different ways. Hmm. I can think of groups that I would have used these rules every session and had them memorized and I wouldn't even need to look them up and it would have been important and it would have mattered and the checks that they make for tracking or perception or uh, nature would have been hugely important. And then I can think of campaigns I've run where none of this would have come up at yeah. any point because we were always just traveling from one place to another and we hand waved the travel and that that was it so i think the dis, uh the ambiguity the the disparity that's the word i'm looking for the disparity between what different groups find important and what what they find fun and what the their campaign calls for make this sort of second thoughts uh yeah and so they just said oh we should probably put something in where should it go well let's put it here oh but we already did it there uh, i don't know let's just do it again i mean and it happens when you're running out of time which you know probably took place and will probably mm -hmm. take place again <laughs> but um but yeah. I, but yeah i mean i think some organiz improvement to organization could happen where you really have wh when you're doing a thing you want to find the rules for that thing right if i am traveling from a to b I want to have those rules all in one place, the inspiration, the rules, all of it. If mm -hmm. I am going to create wilderness encounters, I want all that in one place, right? So I think those are two different things and I want them fully defined. Mm -hmm. From the wilds of the wilderness to the drama of the intercity social gathering, we now look at social interaction and in something that lots of times people just handle through role-playing, this gives us an actual mechanical process to figure out how to run, which I, for one, liked. Uh, it gives us the Dungeon Master's Guide. This chapter gives us the four-step process. First step, you determine the starting attitude of the people with whom the party are interacting. 
-hmm. So are they friendly? Are they indifferent or are they hostile? And you can use your notes. You can use the adventure to figure out what they might be. Once you've done that, you go on to step two, which is Teos. Uh, it is conversation. And so here where it's suggested, you know, hey, state your case, right? That the players should try to do things which could change attitudes. Uh, and there's that possibility that you're going to consider the flaws and characteristics of monsters. You might have wisdom insight uh, that then grants some benefit to discovering what they what they want. What do these monsters want? What do they favor? What might buy them off? Things like that. Um, and based on that interaction, we are then directed as DM to set a DC. And that's an interesting approach to it, Sean. I don't know what you think about that step. Yeah, I, I think that I think that this is handled in different ways, strangely, because step three is make that charisma check. Mm -hmm. And so rather than having a, a pass-fail DC, like we normally get with 5e, d20 sorts of, of games... This says, all right, you uh, you roll and there are steps. And if you get higher than this step, you can get something out of the, the NPC, depending on the situation. If you get this step, you can get something in an even sort of more dire situation. Mm -hmm. So at some point, someone will do something for you if it costs them nothing. The next step is they will do something for you if it costs them just a little bit or there's a little bit of a risk. And then there's a next step where they will do something for you, even if the risk is huge. And so that's I found that interesting that the whole game would would be played one way and then this chart plays <laughs> another. And it, it makes sense. Right. It makes sense in this particular situation. So I'm OK with it. Uh, but it's. It's a good guide. It's just weird for me in a chart form. Yeah. Uh, that yeah I, sure. I guess is my, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it creates away. a sort of series of steps rather than have, which may not be a natural outcome of the conversations you've had. You know, it feels a little video gamey. Mm -hmm. Like I do right. these things. Mm, well, the menu option only allows for x and that's the result that was determined and and so i don't particularly love right. that it, it's worth pointing out that tasha's cauldron of everything in chapter four dungeon masters tools which we covered uh in 2021 in march mm -hmm. uh that has a piece on social interaction rules that revisits kind of talks about parlaying with monsters and tries to Add to this, I don't know that we loved it. I feel like we did not particularly love it, as I recall. Um, it gave more yeah, about monster desires and things like that. Um, so it, it has some limits as yeah. well, but it's clearly something that's on the designer's rule uh, mind to to kind of tweak the rules. Um, we also saw in the Unearthed Arcana playtest packets as part of the one D and D early efforts. A uh, I forget what the name of it is, but it, it's like. Uh, it's not convinced, but it's like an action you take to get someone to do a yep. thing. And it sort of replaces this mm -hmm. with a more direct DC that is opposed and, and you're getting them to do the thing you want. And um, influence, I think it's the influence action. Um, I don't know that I love that either. I, I, I would like 
the, I would like this tweaked. I don't exactly know how I want it tweaked, but I would, I think it's helpful to, to, to frame it. Like I like how the step one of determine the starting attitude, that's a good way to wrap your head around it. I think the idea of encouraging yeah. conversation and thinking through both on the DM side and the player player's side, can you figure out what these creatures are motive by, motivated and want is really good. And then something needs to happen differently there to create more organic outcomes, more fun, more engagement. Um, that's not just a, well, this is what you get. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a system that could be very mechanized and in a good way, very mechanized in a good way, but not everybody wants to play the game that way. And some people outright oppose play that way yeah right they don't want to roll to see if they can convince the ogre to leave the city alone they want to role play that out yeah and and that's okay too and so i think i i would love to see a a dual branching tree mm. of you want to do this mechanically here's mm. a process and start sort of start with this go into a little more detail how do you figure out what the ogre might want you might have to do insight checks you might have to do nature checks you might have to do investigate checks to notice that the the ogre is limping yeah. and really what the ogre needs mm -hmm. is to have the thorn removed from right. his foot right and then he will you know that that sort that of classic, thing yeah um show yeah. sh show that played out in different ways give examples of different ways that you could run that and let the dm with that information that you're giving them choose the way that they want to handle their yeah. um, interactions and choose the best way for each situation that they want uh, absolutely absolutely and just even speaking to those possibilities would be really helpful to DMs because I, I recall my first Living Greyhawk third edition organized play adventure, first organized play uh, convention I ever attended. There was a DM where there was a scene between kind of the typical high elves in the forest lands and we had some pressing need and we we're trying to get them to do things. And I'm trying to roll. The rest of the table was pretty quiet. And, and, and at some point the DM you know, kind of breaks character and says, like, I don't care about your role. You know, like, convince me. And I'm like, uh, okay. And so I gave an impassioned speech. And then the elves were like, okay, you know, we hear your words. Mm -hmm. You know, we sense the conviction. We will give you an opportunity. And, and then the thing progressed. And I thought like, oh, wow, that was really interesting that this person so wanted to create that kind of a role-playing experience versus a role, <laughs> a die experience. And, and that's right. not clearly for everybody, but it, it made a big impression on me. And I greatly enjoyed the moment. Um, but just even speaking to that possibility is important. And I think the the codified version in Unearthed Arcana sort of shuts down that breadth of possibilities even further than what these rules do, which is a danger because you want to clearly yeah. speak to when this when that they have these options, right? That the game can work in different ways and that players will like different things. I mean, mm -hmm. because one of the things that happens, it's it's not like players are are bad or or good or anything, but you know, you may derive a lot of your pleasure from how cleverly you built up a really good negotiating character with all these great skills. So you want to roll. That's the payoff for all mm -hmm. that investment. Yeah. That's totally logical, right? I built right. this character to be a master negotiator mm -hmm. and Bob just gets to say whatever they want and it's a good idea. So Bob wins. Like what? Like I, I, I made this negotiator character. What's happening here, right? 
I want to roll. And I'm, by the way, I don't like to speak when I play. <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that's something that really needs to be told to DMs. Mm -hmm. So each DM can handle uh, things in the best way possible for the situation, for their players, for themselves, and so on. Last but not least, we're not going to get all the way through this chapter today, but we will talk about objects and stats for objects. And you might say, well, what could be possibly even remotely interesting or thought-provoking about this? Well, that's why you come here. Uh -huh. So what are we given here? We are given stats for objects and armor classes that you would need to hit in order to damage or break them. Each object type or size has hit points, uh, whether they are tiny, small, medium, or large, and fragile or resistant. So a tiny, fragile thing will only have two hit points, whereas a resilient, large object, like a cart, uh, would have 27 hit points. Then we get rules for huge or gargantuan objects and what you need to do to track those, dividing them into different parts. So a gargantuan, gargantuan statue uh, might be toppled only when its large legs are reduced to zero hit points. Uh, mm -hmm. There's talk about objects and damage types. So objects do not take poison or psychic damage, but fire damage may work very well against paper, whereas uh, bludgeoning might work well against glass, but not against leather. And then damage thresholds that some objects may have a threshold that you must get over with any single attack in order to damage it at all. But once you meet that threshold, it takes the full amount of damage. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's one of those sections that go, you... Go ahead, don't, if you had something to say. Yeah, well, you don't care about this at all until you suddenly super need it. Uh, and so it's a, you, mm -hmm. you must have this in the game, I think, because there are times when it comes up and, and it's really helpful to have the game's logic be transparent like this. I think it's also good for designers. Like when this table exists, then you can come to it and base things off of this so that the world feels a little more reproducible um, and, and, and more realistic when you pin things off of these kinds of uh, variances and constraints, which makes its design pretty important. Um, where this will tie into is in, when we continue talking about this chapter next time, when we talk about things like siege equipment, the rules for damaging ships and the siege weapons and the damage thresholds and all this begin to interplay in ways that may not be particularly fun. <laughs> and and it, it has to do with mm -hmm. that. So you, you need to think when you base things off of this sort of math, uh, what the play experience will be yeah. like. And, and that's where I think this could have a little yep. more guidance about not just the reality of the situation, but the gameplay of it, right? The, the situation of it. Because yes, we might say a stone yeah. statue is this way. And then you could argue it a couple of ways, right? Like, oh, it has a damage threshold or it doesn't. Or just like you said, take down the legs is all you need to do. Um, and the play of it, right? Where how many rounds am I expecting the players to hack away at the statue maybe in the middle of a combat? Because maybe that's not really tenable. And so that, mm -hmm. that piece that's specific to the situation is always important to consider in and above, you know, beyond these rules that exist here. 
what what sort of like what Teos is saying, what this what this section lacks, and I think what's there is great. Mm -hmm. What it lacks is when do I do damage to mm -hmm. objects? When is it? Because if you if you don't know anything about DMing or you're a new DM, you might look at this and go, oh, so if I hit my party with a fireball, <laughs> they all have weapons. They should, their armor should be taking <laughs> fire damage, right? How many hit points does their armor have? Or alternatively, you're in a dungeon room and in the back is the vampire who is surrounded by tapestries and surrounded by the coffin and surrounded by those things. How often in our games do we, oh, I cast a fireball. I put it way in the back. So I don't hit my party, but I hit the vampire. Okay. The vampire takes blank fire damage. Great. Okay. The encounter's over. Now let's loot the tapestry. Let's loot the coffin. Let's loot. Wait a second. <laughs> you just fireballed all that stuff. And I told you it was there. Yeah. You expect it to not be burned, right? That sort of thing belongs in this section right, right. here. Yeah. Um, and and, yeah. and uh, so it's it's sort of important to give what you should consider as a game master as you are thinking about and looking at these things. Yeah, that's a great point. Because yes, maybe, for example, that vampire's coffin uh, would have been burned. So the vampire better have a backup coffin somewhere and probably would because mm -hmm. that's the point. Exactly. And next time we will continue with this chapter full of such great information and interesting topics to talk about. So thank you for listening to that. And thank you to our patrons who are out there supporting us in our efforts to bring joy and grace and beauty and knowledge to you in your D&D and role-playing game life. So thank you to our Master of Dungeon supporters. We really do appreciate your support. Thank you to our Master of Realm supporters. You are listed in our show notes. And to our Masters of the Multiverse, well, you know what's coming next. Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, DM Chad, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Johnson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, aka DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Samose, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you so much for your support. You can join these folks and help us out by becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash mastering D&D. You get access to our Discord where we have some amazing conversations about design, about the RPG industry, and we love communicating with folks there. If you can't support us via Patreon, we still love you. Uh, and you can help us out by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can go to YouTube and you can click subscribe, and that will help us along our journey. Teos, where can people find you? Find me this weekend at PAX but also at alphastream.org. It's true. Uh, Sean, where do we find you? 
Oh, I am at all the places. I am still on Twitter, XYZ. I am on uh, Mastodon. I am on Blue Sky. I am, I think I'm on something else, but I don't even know what it is. I go to, to YouTube to check out comments. Uh, and you can, of course, always leave comments for us on that YouTube channel. So, Teos, we have now gone through a little bit more of chapter eight. We know about inspiration. We know about objects. We know about consequences for our actions. What are we going to do now? Well, I think I'm going to go back and try to see if my kids will allow me to use that table for influencing their reactions just to get them to do things like clean their room. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll just have them roll. I'll roll and we'll decide whether they have to clean their room right now. Mm -hmm. I strongly suggest you roll with advantage. Mm -hmm. Good call. <laughs> 